Hello. Thank you for listening to Eclipsed Epics. Season 1, Episode 6, A Sun Scorn. Last time, we followed Sartorius through his flight to Spain, his departure from there, and the passing of his mother. After his mourning period passed, Sartorius emerged from his dwelling and ascended to the emissaries of the Lusitanii to lead them against the Roman forces in Spain, now doubly fueled by his hatred of Sulla due to Sulla keeping Sartorius from closure of the death of his mother. Sartorius would lead the Lusitanians and the rest of the Iberians un- under a populare banner as a counter to the Sullan governance. But the Sartorius would still have to solve the problems of getting to Iberia, slipping past Roman forces you know are just waiting for him to land there. According to Matizak, 4,700 Lusitanians met Sartorius by a mountainside near a fishing port by the Pillars of Hercules, the modern-day Straits of Gibraltar. Sartorius' force numbered 700 North Africans and 2,600 Romans, along with the locals he had along his side. These forces, when they combined, totaled to about 8,000, or about a legion and a half. The current Roman governor, and I'm going to really have a hard time pronouncing this, I tried to look this one up, and guess what, I couldn't find anything, so I'm going to go, Fifid. Dias, so Fifi Dias. Let's go with Fifi Dias. This dude, Fifi Dias, was uh, out. He actually outnumbered Sartorius, and it would be Sartorius's first test in Iberia. Sartorius had dusted a naval force under a man named Coda on his way to Spain. Hearing of Sartorius's landing, Fifi Dias and his force marched south from. Italica to meet him near the river Beatus and repel Sartorius from Spain once and for all. But even though Fifi Dias outnumbered Sartorius, the terrain of the Beatus estuary was tricky and favored someone with a knowledge of the region. And Roman governors were not usually in Spain to learn the region in order to defend it. No, they were there to exploit it for anything and everything they could get. And Fifi Dias was no exception to this rule. And unfortunately for Fifi Dias, Sartorius was the exception. Sartorius whooped up on Fifi Dias in a swampy maze. Afterwards, Fifi Dias vanished into obscurity, losing 2,000 and the South to Sartorius. Although Sartorius crushed that solid army, the remainder fled to some version of Akoda. There is some discrepancy in the historical record whether this coda is the coda that was torched by Sartorius on the sea or whether it was a different coda. Regardless, that whatever coda it was, he was in northeastern Iberia uh, waiting to fight Sartorius. Sartorius was busy dealing with his new conquest, so he sent one of his most trusted lieutenants, Lucullius Hercules, to crush coda. We don't know much about Hercules before the year 82 BC. And fortunately, all we do know is connected quite closely with the upcoming Satorian War. In 82, Hercules left Rome to flee Sulla's wrath. Next we hear of him, Hercules was made Satorius' second in command after the death of Julius Salinator in 
the Pyrenees. That name is always going to get me, I think. I think it comes up one more time at the very, very end. Um, now Hercules was sent northeast to face Coda. But as Hercules traveled, Coda's forces were no longer commanded by him. Now, another sullen commander, Domitius Calvinus, was moving south to meet Hercules. Rather than moving to meet him, Hertulius stopped short and prepared where he was in the interior of Iberia. Consequently, this conflict would actually have to wait until the next year because the campaign season was of 80 was actually rapidly coming to a close. It was a year that, that Sartorius would have to as assess as an unqualified success. He stormed Iberia and not only managing to gain a foothold on the peninsula, he could actually go on the offensive. The year 79 opened up with Hertulius continuing his preparation against nearer Spain's governor, Domitius, near the river Anas. And now we have to resolve that cliffhanger between those two from the previous year. The fight started with Hertulius's force doing a controlled version of a feigned flight to draw Domitius deeper and deeper into the interior. This would be where, yet again, knowledge of terrain would help the Romans. But again, there's no time for that with a packed schedule of raping and pillaging, keeping the Romans busy for years on end. But Hertulius did have that knowledge, and he drew Domitius further away from any supplies or anything he thought he knew. Along the line, the Romans under Domitius were constantly harassed and ambushed by Hercules' force. This retreat, harass, weaken, and eventually a defeat strategy would continue until a perfect moment when the Romans were hungry, fed up, and demoralized. At this low point, Hercules attacked. Domitius' forces crumbled like feta and either killed him or handed Domitius over as a peace offer. The Satorian forces faced its first round of tests and Pass with flying colors. Sertorius now had a tangible control over Iberia, or at least part of it. To consolidate that control, Sertorius had to balance on a trapeze wire hanging between two sides of the Grand Canyon to get the public re relations all correct. Now, back at Rome, no matter what Sertorius did, it wouldn't matter. Because Sulla and his cronies would either paint Sertorius at best as someone who is a leader of rebel natives, and at worst as a traitor to a state that needed to be finished at any cost. This most charitable Roman <laughs> sullen view of Sertorius survives onto this very day. Mary Beard makes a passing comment about Sertorius in her book, SPQR. She says, speaking of Pompey, quote, he was given by the Senate a long-term command in Spain to deal with a Roman general who had gone native with a large army, unquote. That general who had gone native she was referring to was Quintus Sertorius. But despite Rome's effort to label otherwise, Sertorius insisted, reinforced, and reiterated his Romanness. This uprising in Spain was a populare one, and therefore a Roman one. There would be only Roman commanders that would lead the coalition of other Romans, North Africans, Spaniards, into the battle against Sullen legions. Most of Sertorius' aims in this conflict were that so he and his fellow Romans could return to Rome and retire without the threat of prescriptions hanging over their collective heads. 
Sartorius did not want to burn that bridge, but unfortunately, as long as Sulla was in charge of Rome, it would constantly label him as a traitor, thus making Sartorius's destruction easy for those who had to carry it out. With that said, what were Sartorius's goals in Spain? Well, immediately, he wanted to increase his power base by using the promise of better governance from Rome if Sartorius won. Sartorius had already put a down payment on this gamble when he was governor a couple years back. But there was an obligation here that would bring Sartorius to ruin if Rome would drag this war on. Sartorius had to defend the natives against Sullen forces. If those forces were large enough to be in more places than one, Sartorius would have a hard time defending multiple places at once. And we're going to find this out later. This is probably one of the things that actually brought him down at the end. Well, actually, mo- most most likely, that's probably the number one thing that brought him down at the end. Um, and if you and if you want to know how hard it is to defend multiple places at once, you can just ask Hannibal Barca after after the Battle of Cannae. Sartorius, of course, had political aims, as any good Roman does. He needed to defend himself and the region, betting on either the current Roman government not wanting to drag this war on, or the government changing sooner rather than later. We can understand why Popularis flocked to Sartorius and fought for him. They were fleeing from the Roman dictator Sulla. But why would the natives want to help him in a civil war against other Romans? Well, the liberal policies of freedom from Roman taxation, conscription, and quartering of Roman troops were a good start. But liberal policies might get someone who was exploited to say, hey, I really like that guy. I hope he wins. But tax policy doesn't exactly stir the martial spirit. One reason natives joined him, being, that being Sertorius, like Marius, he would get down in the dirt with the grunts and share in the army's hardships. People like it when their commanders or bosses aren't above doing the lower tasks. It humanizes them a little bit. And I I go through this on a daily basis with my supervisor, at least one of my supervisors. I technically have two, but I'm talking about one supervisor in particular. I recently had a thing where like I had to be gone for three days. And one of those days, someone that normally covers me, it was off too. And, you know, it's not like I was going out like, you know, boating on the lake or doing something frivolous. I had something really important I needed to do and take care of those three days. But unfortunately, one of those three days, um, like I said before, one of my coworkers wasn't there to cover me. So I get a I get a text at six in the morning. And to some of you, that might not sound early, but I work late shift. So I get a text at six o'clock in the morning basically saying, hey, this dude's not going to, from my supervisor saying this dude that usually covers you is not going to be there i can't have both of you out and that frustrated me mightily because i have done many 12-hour shifts there many 11-hour shifts there a couple 13-hour shifts i've it's pushed 15-hour shifts there and you know working until the work is done doing all those things you know those little things that you hope get noticed and stuff like that and this supervisor can't do that little bit extra one day when he knew how kind of important you know the thing I was do I was doing was he knew how important that was and it it really frustrated me and and I knew what type of 
supervisor he was. So I wasn't, you know, the scales hadn't been removed from my eyes and I saw him for the very first time, but it just disappointed me mightily. And, and if he had like just kind of sucked it up a little bit and, and actually did it, I would, you know, look at him and be like, you know what? You're an all right guy. But it, I, that's not how that place runs. I totally understand how things go. But, you know, past that little diversion there, there was something else I think that others miss when talking about this whole, you know, people flocking to Sartorius thing. Sartorius' spy service most likely helped him view people as, well, people. Something the average Roman commander would not do. Because after you fought in the legions and worked your way up to the ranks of general or commander or something like that, you didn't have to associate yourself with um, your soldiers or common people or even your en- or at all your enemy, right? You were, you know, commanding from a white horse and commanding this legion and that to take this city and you don't have to think about many, you know, personal matters. And those things... People like to think those things in the military or in business don't matter. They do. They matter so much. And this is someone who's talking as a, you know, as a as a laborer and a worker generally. Like, you know, I'm I'm at the lowest rung where I'm working now. So it's one of those things where like I see if I see a commander that gets down and dirty and is not afraid to do the hard work or like viewing problems of their um their employees as like maybe they've had those problems before those those things i really value i'm not, I'm not gonna lie to you um but getting back to satorius um there are other reasons on top of the getting down to working with the grunts and the idea of him viewing people as people thing just Satorius's physical presence alone was probably enough to convert natives to his banner on seeing him. When he walked through your town, he was flanked by bodyguards and officers. Satorius had on this general's cloak with the facial scars, including that missing eye from the social war. All of these things together is going to create an impression that he had seen some things and done some things and might know what he was doing. So implicitly, if he got out of line, he might do some of those things to you. But Sartorius was not all guff military man, not a stoic walking around like a statue and no expression on his face. No, he did have a softer side. He just We just talked about his mom's death and his reaction that lasted seven days, so that humanizes him a little bit, right? And past the extremely personal tragedy, the man actually had a congenial perso- personality. Philip O. Spahn notes that Sartorius, however sardonic, had a good sense of humor. And, you know, I can I can jive with a guy who has a sardonic, even though, a, you know, a good sense of humor, however sardonic. I tend to have a drier, drier wit that tends to throw people off every once in a while. But, like, combining those things with the sense of justice, it was probably why he saw uh, the exploitation in Spain and tried to stop it. Even factoring the fact that he would benefit from it, you know, politically and probably even personally if he decided to exploit the 
crap out of it, right? Like, he could actually just be one of those exploitive generals and make as much money as he possibly could, and he would have been good. You know, again, he's an equestrian. He's he's rolling. He's probably rolling in cash. You know, he could probably even be rolling in cash and go from maybe a lower-level equestrian to maybe a higher-level equestrian if he decided to not do... to go down the easier path. But Satorius... I, I don't think that would work for him. He had an, a respect of and a, a generosity toward native peoples that was uncommon toward Romans. I think that was in his makeup. I don't know if that was from Jump Street or was it It was him her serving as a spy with the Kimberly and the Teutons. I, I can't tell you why it was, but, you know, one of the best examples we have of him, like, doing this and him being, you know, generous to the natives is, you know, him wrapping himself and and embracing the traditions of Tangier back, you know, in Africa, back from the last episode, I believe. But you could look at this cynically, and I'm not I'm not avoiding that. You know, there was a benefit in that for Sartorius as well. Benefit or no benefit. This brings us to the White Doe. It's probably one of my more favorite stories of, of Sartorius that I, I got on the second time around of actually doing the research for him. Um, if you do not, did not listen to the introduction episode again, shame on you, but you know, this is my second time around dealing with Quintus Satorius. My first time around was probably about hmm, maybe nine or 10 years ago in my, uh, was it, I know I was at Yukon stores. I just don't know whether it was junior or senior year. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's one of those things where like this is my second occurrence with him and I didn't exactly encounter or I didn't read well enough to read about the white doe because that would have been really cool. So as the story goes, a commoner living near Sartorius came across a newly unpregnant deer that ran away from him quite quickly as deers do. Um, Plutarch, Plutarch is the one that notes this. She ran off so quickly that she left behind the result of that birth, a fawn of an unusual color. The commoner caught this white fawn and brought it to Sartorius, who was being showered in gifts at the time, like meats and other foods. It seems like Sartorius really enjoyed this present, so much that he kept it as a pet. Plutarch then implies that it would come when called, a feat I would like to accomplish with my dogs. You know, I mean, one of them is old and arthritic and he can't do much other than just sleep, you know, eat, you know, pee and kind of poop. That's pretty much the only two things he could do. And Acacia, the other dog that I have, the other, the arthritic dog, the arthritic dog's name is Hensley. Acacia, she has her own mindset on things. I have to be very authoritative for her to come when called and I may have to say it a couple more times than that Sartorius uh, had to call this white deer, or white fawn, sorry. The fawn will also follow him around camp, not getting rattled by the noises and the people. And yet again, if either of my dogs could just generally, generally relax, I would be really happy. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, this this fawn sounds like it's the best pet ever. Like, you know, bounds around through camp and stuff you know, comes when calls, maybe it licks the tourists in the face every once in a while. And my dog, I, I was reading, I'm like, God, I, I wish my dogs were that well-trained. 
<laughs> and we've tried with with Acacia specifically because she's younger and she's you know and Hensley's old. He's just gonna do what he's gonna do. But Acacia, we we definitely tried, and she's gotten better. Don't get me wrong, but she's still you know not this white fawn at all. I don't even know what the name for this white fawn is too. I wonder if, what he named her. But Satorius also seeing the political angle. He saw the fawn put would put the populace under some sort of trance and he eventually found out that natives were more prone to superstition so again he tried to aim to wrap himself in the fabric of the community he ruled and this is where my cynical more like you know okay what's baked in the bread what type of biases are baked in the bread of writing here because these people could either be prone to you know prone to suspicion more that's why the authors comment on it or they could be as prone to suspicion as anyone else but the writers of that age pointed out in others more readily because if you go look at you know roman customs through you know the early republic or the late republic they're they you know from an outsider's view they're super superstitious like i think they're still doing sacrifices to random gods and stuff like that so that you know from the outsider looking in the atheist and me i'm like that's superstitious too why are you only commenting on uh this other society doing that so it's one of those things where i'm like "Mm, i don't know i don't know about that once satorius found this out and this I'm talking about is the superstitious nature of the community he was trying to enmesh himself into. He proclaimed that this dough was not a gift from a commoner, but they, but a gift from the goddess that that community revered. He would also hold back intelligence from the battlefield until Satorius could bring out the dough and have it inform him of the news he already knew. Upon the big reveal, the populace would readily prepare to either take back a city or fight the adversary based on the news given. Satorius also would use the fawn in case of victories. Plutarch says Satorius would trot the dough out in an ancient Roman equivalent of party clothes to illustrate a victory in the field. Satorius would keep using the dough in similar ways to maintain the morale of his men, even after Satorius crossed the apex of his campaign in Spain. But next episode, Rome will send the latest challenge to his rule in Spain. Finally, after sending the JV generals, Rome decided it was time to get down to business.